We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. plow ahead as americans do oh no i don't want us to be americans today <laughs> today's not a good day to be an american i'm afraid it's just in our bones <laughs> <sighs> look i've got my All coke right. and you've got your coke yeah diet coke specifically but we're gonna manage that's also in our bones <laughs> Probably actually is. It's probably rotting them away right now. Mm. Thanks, Diet Coke. Ow, why do I keep drinking the bone hurt juice if I don't want my bones to hurt? Ow. On that, should we get started? I think it's your turn. Yes, it is. Hello, welcome to Reread, the podcast where we reread books that we read when we were younger, uh, specifically 18 and under, and see if they hold up, see how we feel about them now. And today, we are uh, rereading The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. So, Casey, what is your prior experience (laughs) with this book? So, this book, when I read, I think I read it, yeah, I read it junior year of high school. And it was much like Pride and Prejudice, one of those books that was very divisive in the class. And I just thought it was, like, boring when I read it as a kid. With, given... My reaction to rereading Pride and Prejudice, I was really hoping that I would have a similar experience with this book. Uh, um, I feel like that hemming and hawing said it all. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you need to rant when you can just go... (laughs) That would be my contribution this episode, is just hemming and hawing, because... I have a few nice things to say, but this book, for me at least, might be the most disappointing book that we've read for this podcast so far. Really? Yeah. Wow. Big! Wow! I mean, I guess maybe in terms of expectations versus... That makes sense. Because I was going to say, like, I feel like we've definitely read worse books, and we have. (laughs) Agreed. I'm not saying this is the worst book we've read. It's just... For me, it was very disappointing in terms of the quality of it, in terms of the content, the characters, the story. (laughs) I basically had an issue with every single element of this book, so (laughs) this is going to be an interesting conversation. What, What about you, Morgan? How did you feel before and how do you feel now? Well, it's really interesting because I picked this book up on my own when I was in high school. I don't remember what year. I want to say sophomore or junior. As has been mentioned numerous times on this podcast thus far, uh, I don't believe in school I read a book that was not by a white person. Mm. I picked this up on my own. It happened because like, if you're like a really voracious reader the way I was and a really fast reader the way I was, and you're a high schooler with no money of your own, and your parents aren't willing to buy you unlimited numbers of books, at some point you end up turning to the library. <laughs> and so I turned to my school's very, very tiny little library, and 
I, I'd have to go back now to see if it was actually as shitty as I remember it being. Like, I remember it being a pretty bad little library. Like, there was not a lot there I wanted to read or was interested in reading. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, at some point, desperate for something to read, came across Amy Tan books. I was like, I have heard of this author, so I will read. And I ended up doing, like, I think it was, like, two weeks where I, maybe it was only one week. I don't remember. There was this period of time where I just checked out all the Amy Tan books that my library had, and I went through them one after the other. So, like, I cannot, until rereading this, like, I remembered things from various Amy Tan books, but I could not tell you what book it was from, because I read, like, three or four of them back to back to back. You know, they have a lot of similar things. (laughs) And, like, the weirdest thing, too, is it's not like I loved them. It wasn't like I read the first, whatever first book was that I read. I don't even remember which one I read first. It wasn't like I read it and I was like, this is the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. I was like, this was good. I'm going to read another because I do not have any other books to read. (laughs) So, like, I think given that my reaction was pretty, like, okay, on a five-star scale when I originally read it, I'd say I would have given it, like, a three or 3.5. Good. Nothing that's blowing my mind. Middle of the road. I had some issues. I had some things I liked, you know. I yeah, I definitely don't think I would have picked up any more if I hadn't been so desperate for books. <laughs> so going into this, like, I remembered a lot of the, like, mood and themes of Amy Chan's work. But I didn't remember any, like, I could not have told you what specifically there was in the Joy Luck Club other than the Joy Luck Club itself. Um, and I didn't even remember how much of a role that played, which turns out is not much not. of a role. <laughs> so like when i was reading i was like oh yes i remember this now i remember this now so it was it all felt very familiar but um essentially i don't think my opinion has changed much i think it's it's become more like nuanced in that like i think i more can look at it and say like ah yes i don't like this particular thing i really like this particular thing other than this just kind of like mood of eh, it was okayness i should hopefully be able to speak well in response to your criticism. Um, But generally, I also, I still think it's kind of like a middle of the road book for me. I wasn't, I didn't like discover anything that I blew my mind. I didn't hate it this time around. I was just kind of like, yeah, same feelings. I just know more now why I feel that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think maybe that's part of it for me is that, this book is so extremely middle of the road and you know, Morgan mediocrity just grinds my soul. I can stand books being bad. Again, I did my birthday episode on goosebumps. Okay. I could stand bad books, but anything in the middle just feels, I know it's not, but it just feels like a personal attack against my time. <laughs> You're not doing anything remarkable. And and that's just, oh, God, the feeling I had this entire time of reading the book. I mean, we'll get into the summary of this in a second. Mm-hmm. But this book is broken into 16 chapters. There are, I guess there are technically eight characters four moms there's only seven narrators yeah (laughs) um but there are eight characters and each of them gets two stories except for the one that isn't an uh this is gonna be so weird to explain but (laughs) 
yeah, let's let's. But just to make my point, like while I was reading through this, I just had to keep consulting back to my notes to remember which characters were which because nothing stood out about any of them. There are some stories and some elements that I liked, but the characters themselves were so flat. Ah, okay. Let's save yes. this. Hem ha. Save hem, it ha. for after the summary, because I I have various feelings on things too. But <laughs> before we jump into any of that, I do kind of want to like foreground what we won't be talking about in this episode, which is like. Again, as we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast, like, Casey and I are both white people. <laughs> and... The whitest people you know. Amy Tan, as an author, is obviously, like, extremely influential in terms of Asian American literature, and therefore there have been a lot of responses to her from within her own community, and in terms of how much she is or isn't accurately representing that community, or the Chinese culture as a whole, so... We do not feel qualified <laughs> to comment on these things. I cannot say, you know, oh, this is accurate. This isn't accurate. I don't know. I know nothing. So uh, I did want to just give a little overview of what some thoughts have been on her. But one of the first people to really push back against Amy Tan is playwright Frank Chin. It's the article is called Come All Ye Asian American Writers of the Real and the Fake. And <laughs> um, a few pages in, he addresses Amy Tan like so. Amy Tan opens her Joy Luck Club with a fake Chinese fairy tale about a duck that wants to be a swan and a mother who dreams of her daughter being born in America, where she'll grow up speaking perfect English and no one will laugh at her, and where, quote, a woman's worth is not measured by the loudness of her husband's belch, end quote. The fairy tale is not Chinese, but white racist. It is not informed by any Chinese intelligence. This is Confucian culture as seen through the interchangeable Chinese slash Japanese slash Korean slash Vietnamese mix, depending on which is the yellow enemy of the moment, of Hollywood. And big quote. <laughs> I realized that was confusing because there's a quote and a quote. Mm. So that's his opinion. And this article has been extremely influential. Pretty much if you mention Amy Tan, this almost always comes up as one of the first and biggest voices pushing back against her work. And there have been then pushback against his work on her, especially because a huge issue for him that he writes about multiple times within the article is the depiction of Chinese men in the works of Amy Tan and other Chinese-American authors, most of them women. And so, for instance, he says... Quote, misogyny is the only unifying moral imperative in this Christian vision of Chinese civilization. All women are victims, etc. There's other quotes, but so there's been a lot of pushback against this and saying that, you know, he's clearly writing from a perspective of a Chinese man. And so in an article that was paired with this called The Woman Warrior versus The Chinaman Pacific, Must a Chinese American Critic Choose Between Feminism and Heroism? The writer says, quote, it is impossible, for example, to tackle the gender issues in the Chinese-American cultural terrain without delving into the historically enforced, quote, feminization of Chinese-American men um, without confronting the dialectics of racial stereotypes and nationalist reactions, or above all, without wrestling with the diehard notions of masculinity and femininity in both Asian and Western cultures. It is partly because of 
These issues touch many sensitive nerves. The writings of such authors as Max, Maxine Hong Kingston and Amy Town had generated such heated debates among Chinese-American intellectuals. Whew! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I also just want to bring in a couple other voices, like these more other more contemporary writers grappling with influence of Tan. Uh, the writer Celeste Ning, who you may know from the book Little Fires ev- Everywhere? Anywhere? I think it's everywhere, right? Little Fires Everywhere? Yes. <laughs> Glad you consulted with me about that. But she wrote an article that is titled Why I Don't Want to Be the Next Amy Tan. This is before she had published a novel. Um, and she says, I'm placing a bet now when I publish my first novel, there's a better than even chance that someone out there will call me the next Amy Tan. The reviewer will mean it as a compliment, but it won't make me happy. Let me explain. My discomfort does not stem from a dislike of Amy Tan. I admire her work. Do do do, let me skip a little bit. But for some reason, Chinese American writers mostly get compared to other Chinese American writers. And then she goes on to say that, of course, Amy Tan is one of the biggest names out there. Uh, and she says, if someone were to call me the next Amy Tan, it would not be because, or not primarily because, we have similar themes or subjects or styles. Let's be honest, it would be because we are both Chinese-American. And there were other writers that I, I ran across that wrote articles. Um, I found another one in HuffPost uh, by an author called Deanna Fay that's called, I called Amy Tan a dirty word, and then she friended me, <laughs> which is all about how... Essentially, she says, among the younger generation of Asian Americans, Amy Tan's name has become a dirty word because essentially, like, she is what comes to represent Chinese or Asian culture for a lot of Mm -hmm. Americans. Like, she's the one Asian American author often taught in schools. Yeah. She she comes to encapsulate everything. (laughs) And that is a problem. Because one writer should not have to stand for everything. And, you know, a lot of these these authors are saying there were things about Amy Tan's work they liked and related to, but they hated having to be constantly compared to her all the time to have her stand for everything about them. Um, and there's just one more quote that I need to find that I would like to bring up from Amy Tan herself. <laughs> all right. So this is an article that's a conversation between Slesning and Amy Tan. So Slesning brings up the, what we were talking about, the conflation that so happen, often happens, quote, between with being the first and the only, because your books for so many are the first they read by an Asian American woman. And then Amy Tan, there's, there's more in between there, but Amy Tan says, people give me credit, gave me credit for breaking down barriers. That was never my intention. I'm glad it happened, but I can't take credit for it because I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know what was going to happen with the book. Now I can talk about it from a different point of view. We still need more stories to show that within the Asian American community, there's diversity. We are not all the same families. Chinese, Japanese, Indonesian, whatever it is, we are not all the same. But it is it was so great to see eventually there were more and more and more. And then my books were no longer Asian American literature. They were simply American literature. I'm not sure if we've actually reached that stage, but I'm <laughs> very happy for Amy Tan if she thinks we have. All right. Okay. That's all, (laughs) all the foregrounding that I feel necessary to do. But I did just want to address that, that there are people who really dislike her representation. What we will talk about is how the book works as like an actual book, the characters, the structure, the writing, etc. All of our normal things. We just won't be addressing some of the (laughs) issues or thoughts about accuracy. Anything else you'd like to add before we get into the summary? 
No, because inevitably we're going to, it'll just spark a bigger conversation. <laughs> so we should just start the summary now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We keep choosing the hardest books ever to summarize, and I resent this. <laughs> Eventually we're going to get to like Ulysses, and it's going to be literally impossible to summarize. Uh, they could just read the Odyssey if they want to know what happens in Ulysses. Anyhow. <laughs> That's, oh, I can't. Yep. <laughs> Please summarize. So, as you already mentioned, uh, the book is split up into 16 vignettes. Um, and those are each broken up into four different sections. And I, I guess a ooh, quick background on how this happened. Like, originally... Amy Tan just wrote one of these short stories as a short story, and then I guess her agent liked it so much that they, like, submitted it to an editor, and the editor's like, yes, we would like a book about this. And Amy Tan was like, that was not the plan. <laughs> but then oh. she wrote a book. And she also mentions at some point being inspired by a novel of, um, I forget which one, Louise Erdrich's, that was yeah, also multiple... Books stories from different perspectives and and therefore she was inspired to create this format so it as you said <laughs> follows the mothers and daughters of four different families these four families are all involved in the joy luck club which is essentially a, a weekly meeting where the four mothers would get together and play mahjong and now one of the mothers has died so her daughter, Jingmei, is stepping in to take her mother's spot in the Joy Luck Club. And this kind of causes a meeting of the two generations and is the impetus for a lot of the, for the stories that spiral forward. So I think how I'm going to tackle this is family by family instead of in order, because I think that will make the most sense. <laughs> oh, oh, indeed. I, I wish the book thought of that, too. I, but then they'd be <laughs> totally disconnected. The sections are split in ways that, like, so the first section is is Jingmei's opening story, and then it has stories from the three mothers, and then the two middle sections are the daughter's stories, and then it ends with the mothers again, and Jingmei is the through thread, through thread? Wow. <laughs> the thread that connects them all. <laughs> so, Jingmei's story is essentially that her mother died somewhat recently, and she's grappling with a lot of her leftover emotions about her relationship with her mother, because it certainly wasn't an easy one. Jimmy has always felt she was never as successful as her mother would have liked her to be, and one of her flashbacks is thinking about how her mother was always trying to find like something she could be a genius in, exacerbated by the fact that one of the other girls in this uh, group is a chess genius. And so she is trying all these different things. You know, one of the things is she tries his piano and there's an entire section about how she like didn't bother to really practice and then had to go up on, to, up on stage and do a recital and like just totally epically <laughs> fail. Her mother's always been disappointed in how not ambitious she is. And, you know, she dropped out of college. She's not, she's working as a copywriter for a small ad agency, nothing really big. And so... She comes into this meeting of the Doyla Club at feeling very mixed emotions. And when they're playing, the three other women reveal to her that her mother has actually gotten in touch with um, her twin daughters who she had to abandon when she was leaving China. And 
they finally managed to find them all these years later. And the sisters have reached out, hoping to meet their mom again. And of course, she's since passed away. So the uh, women of the Joyla Club have put together money to help Jingmei go to China so she can meet her sisters and tell her sisters about their mother and what happened and everything. Her story is... The last, her last chapter sees her going there and reuniting. Well, not even reuniting because she never met her sisters, but uniting with her sisters. <laughs> Again, it's really hard to summarize. Some of, some of the other flashbacks are about a lot of it's her dwelling on feeling like she's a failure and feeling like her her mother let slip what happened to her her twin daughters when Jingmei is very young in an argument. So Jingmei spent a lot of time wondering whether her mother <laughs> was disappointed in having her instead of them. And so the moment in the end of them uniting is her seeing her sisters and instead of seeing them at first, she only she sees their mother and they do the same with her. And so they're all able to, in this moment, find their mother in each other, even though she's gone. Some other things that happen, but I'm going to keep it short and brief and keep it, keep us going. Uh-huh. All right. So the other characters. Which, which family next? I'm going to go with the order that's in the handy little uh, character thing. Let's just go with Anmei and her daughter, Rose. God. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard. Okay. So Anmei's story, I'm going to do Anmei first and then Rose, because they're, they are connected, but they're not, like, so interconnected that I can tell them together. So Anmei's story is, mostly focuses on her relationship with her mother, and how her mother was ostracized from her family because she remarried after Anmei's father died, uh, and became the third concubine of a very wealthy man. Anmei at first is raised separate from her mother, but then when her grandmother is very, very ill, her mother ends up coming home to try and care for her mother. Wow, there's going to be a lot of her mothers in here. Her grandmother dies, and her mother ends up taking Anmei with her back to the house where she lives with her new husband and his other wives. Once there, Anmei realizes that her mother is very unhappy because she got tricked into this well not tricked she was raped and that's how she got forced into this marriage and the rape was orchestrated by the man's second wife who essentially runs the entire household in order to get free of this Anmei's mother ends up deliberately like overdosing on opium and dying yep mm. <laughs> what <laughs> Indeed, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just trying to think if there was anything I was missing before I move on to well, Rose's story. Okay, so the idea behind it's like it's an orchestrated thing on the mom's part because the husband in this situation apparently is very superstitious. So she basically kills herself in a way that will suggest to the husband that she will come back as a vengeful ghost if he doesn't take care of his daughter of her daughter and so the daughter yes. gets elevated to a higher position and is better off because of this sacrifice yes yeah, sorry that i knew i was forgetting something thank you for adding that 
I remember this because that's probably probably my favorite story from this selection. So, but anyway. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So Rose, her story focuses around her relationship with her husband. He's recently told her he wants to get divorced. Their relationship has been going on since they were in college. And over the years, she's become more and more of a kind of passive agent. Like he's taken over making the decisions and she's just kind of like gone along with it. And he, in the past year or so, started to get frustrated with her about that, like wanting her to express opinions on things. And she's just like, I don't know, whatever you want to do. And eventually he gets so fed up, he's like, I want a divorce. We're not doing this anymore. And she's grappling with that and and trying to figure out how to deal with that and uh, grappling with her own sort of passivity, too. She thinks back to when she was a kid and her family went to the beach and um, she has a pretty big family. And so she was tasked by her mother uh, with watching her little brother, who was like only four she was watching him. Everything was going okay. He decided he wanted to climb over some rocks to get to where their dad is. She's watching him. But then a fight breaks out between her other brothers. Her mom's like, Rose, help me deal with him. So she breaks them up. She turns back and she sees her little brother just as he's about to fall. And she just watches as he falls in and she isn't able to do anything. The, her little brother dies. That's a big part of her story. In the end, she's able to, when her husband comes back, She's like, you need to come by the house. Like, I'm not going to sign these divorce papers <laughs> until you come and see something in the house. He comes back and she brings him out to the garden, which was his his whole thing. He used to spend hours there carefully cultivating it, but it's kind of gone wild since no one's been taking care of it. And he's like, ah, this is a mess. Like, I'm going to have to fix it once I move back in because he wants her to leave the house. He's also now uh, hooked up with another woman. And she's like, actually, I like the garden the way it is. And also, I am keeping the house. My lawyer will be speaking to you fairly well. Oh, no, she didn't. Yeah, that's Rose. <laughs> All right. So next up on the list, it is uh, Linda and Waverly. So once again, I'll do mom first, child second. Lindo is betrothed from birth to a uh, the son of a slightly wealthier family in its arranged marriage. And so when her family's house gets flooded when she's like 12 years old and they end up having to move, they're like, okay, well, you can just get married early so you don't have to move with us. Or not get married early. She's just moving in with her in-laws early. They're going to get married later. So she moves in with the in-laws and her mother-in-law essentially has her work as a servant for many years and she's like oh this is so she learns how to you know do right by my son essentially but linda's like yeah no <laughs> it's just you don't respect me yeah and eventually linda and the man do get married and on the evening of the wedding i guess um there's supposed to be a candle that is lit from both ends and it's supposed to burn all night to like symbolize you know two people's coming together etc etc and there's supposed to be a servant there to watch it and make sure it doesn't go out and it burns all the way up up on its own that night of the wedding the son is like i am not sleeping with you <laughs> and linda's like cool i definitely did not want to sleep with you you're a jerk and she ends up actually going down to watch the candle and the servant girl ends up stepping away from the candle for a little bit and it blows out 
Sorry, does it blow or does she blow it up? Now I'm I I believe. Why don't we just confirm this? Yeah, let's do that. No, she blows it out. So it says. Good for her. I was not thinking with my leg, blah, 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 blah. It fluttered a little and the flame bent down low, but still both ends burned strong. My throat filled with so much hope that it finally burst and blew out my husband's end of the candle. Good for her. It's a very, like, passive, like, a very indirect way of describing that she does this herself. But she does, in fact, blow out the candle. Anyhow, so after that, uh, she continues not sleeping with her husband because neither of them wants to sleep with the other. And her mother-in-law gets very upset about how she is not pregnant. And... Just to confirm to myself, it seems like the narrative is suggesting the husband in this situation is not interested in women. Oh, yeah. No, he's definitely not. He's gay. He's definitely not into women. At all. Okay. So he's gay. Well, he could be not into (laughs) women and not gay. I suppose that's true. Let's just say he is not into women. Okay. So. (laughs) He's not into women. So eventually Lita comes up with a scheme to get the heck out of this marriage. Where she pretends that she's had a dream from her ancestors about how she cannot, if she stays married to this man, he's going to die. Whoa. What? Also that he needs to get this other girl pregnant and that's that's the correct thing whoa what and she specifically chooses a a serving girl who she knows has been sexually assaulted by a man wait it's is that the yeah huh okay i just thought it was like a a tryst between the servant girl and some some guy who's also there because it's described how they're flirting together right at first, it sounds like that, but then, um, here, let me find it just so, <laughs> I'm sorry, like, this is, wow, this is the worst summary in the world. <laughs> I'd say that's fitting, because it's the worst book in the world. Um, because it talks about how the serving girl is, like, relieved afterwards to not have to, yeah, so, um. And after much searching, they found the servant girl I liked so much. The one I had watched from my window every day. I'd seen her eyes grow bigger and her teasing voice become smaller whenever the handsome delivery man arrived. And later I'd watched her stomach go rounder and her face become longer with fear and worry. I guess maybe he wasn't abused. She's just scared because she's pregnant. Yeah, that's, ambiguous. That's, that's how I interpreted it. Hmm. They they had some sexy time between the servants, but, you know, all the men are <laughs> bags in this story. So uh, she's just there single and preggers and then suddenly this uh lindo intervenes in a way yeah so she comes up with a solution where her now ex doesn't have to sleep with any woman (laughs) the serving girl gets to be like not shunned for out of wedlock pregnancy and lindo gets to leave yeah the the marriage is annulled for her yeah so great for her there's a cute detail that i like where Part of her quote unquote dream is that this girl that the husband's supposed to marry is actually secretly royalty descended from (laughs) some ancient emperor. And there's a detail where they like interrogate this servant girl and eventually she confesses that, oh, yeah, of course, I am 
a secret <laughs> princess. And it's like, okay, that was that was cute. I liked that. I'm glad you liked something, Casey. <laughs> um, okay, so then she she leaves. She works for a bit. She ends up going to America, where she then meets her next husband, Waverly's father, and she ends up working at a fortune cookie factory, uh, which is also where she meets on May. There's this whole thing where, like, she and her husband-to-be, like, don't, neither of them speak very good English, and they don't speak the same language, Chinese dialect. Uh, He speaks Cantonese, and she speaks Mandarin. So they're, like, trying to, like, figure out ways to communicate. You know, they do a lot of passing notes because they both write Chinese characters. So, like, that's one way for them to communicate. And she ends up... (laughs) Getting him to propose to her by giving him a note in a fortune cookie that's like, a house is empty without a spouse or something like that. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know this word spouse. Like, I, I'll get back to you tomorrow once I figure out what this means. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then he's like, will you spouse me? And she's like, that is not the correct way to ask. But yes, I will. Very cute. Very cute, except for the part where she's like, I don't really know why I wanted him to marry me so much. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, and that's uh, that's that. Waverly is the aforementioned chess genius and Lindo's daughter. So her story is about how she learned chess as a very young girl and was extremely impressive, winning competitions left and right, beating people twice, three times, four times her age. You know, she was on the road to becoming a chess master. Grandmaster, I guess the term is. I don't know. I didn't watch the chess TV show everyone else watched. (laughs) What is the name of that show? Who cared? (laughs) Wow, we're rude. Okay, a lot of people care. Supposedly it was really good. Anyhow, so she does this and, you know, it makes her mom very proud of her, obviously. And her mom is always bragging about her and how good she is and saying how much she helps. She'll be like, oh, yeah, I told her to do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Waverly's like, no, you didn't. Oh, my God, you're so irritating, mom. <laughs> and eventually she screams at her mom and is like, stop telling people, like, that you're my mom and, like, you did all this because you didn't. Ugh. And Waverly goes on, like, chess strike, where she refuses to play. (laughs) She thinks this will make her mom, like, apologize and better and all of that. But instead, her mom just kind of, like, lets her do it and just ignores her. And Waverly feels like she's lost all the power in their relationship. She eventually starts playing chess again of her own accord, but she has, like, this doubt now. Um, now that her mom has defeated her, essentially, and she's never able to really do that well again, and ends up dropping chess entirely a few years later. In the present day, she is a successful professional, and... (laughs) (laughs) What? She is! So, the hesitation, the way you described it, it's... We don't learn a lot about her work. Yeah, she works at like an architecture firm, but it, it, it does have the feeling of like, ah, yes, I am a character and I work in business. How are things at the old nine to five? Good. I went to the stock market today. I did a business. Wait, I don't think 
She does work at an architecture firm. She works... I Isn't architecture the other people? Who... Which one? <laughs> Lena and her husband are the architecture people, aren't they? Uh... I'm pretty sure that Waverly does something with money. Because then later on, Lindo jokes about her working at a bank. Oh, you know what? You might be right. You might be right. This is the first time my habit of winging our summaries has really come back to bite us. <laughs> I should have written this all down. I, 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 uh, uh, uh. Let's just say she's a professional. She's it a really professional. is not important what she does. The point is, is that she had previously been in a relationship and had a daughter and then gotten divorced from her previous husband. And now she is engaged to her co-worker, Rich, who is a white man. And she is very nervous oh, right. about bringing They're him accountants. Back. That's what they are. Oh, I should have remembered that. Um, also, shame on me. Sorry, my parents. <laughs> the name of the Netflix show is The Queen's Gambit. I Let's just get it all out there. All right. It's there. But yeah, so basically, she's very nervous about introducing Rich to her parents because every time she tries to bring him up with her mom, her mom just changes the subject. It's like not interested in talking about him at all. So finally, she's like, okay, I'm going to bring him back. We're going to do this. It'll be fine. He's great. He's great. But she's just very terrified that like, I guess she feels like part of why her previous marriage fell apart is that her mom... Like, saw her husband and was like, oh, he sucks. And, like, pointed out things about him that sucked. And then all of a sudden, that was all Waverly could see. And so she's very worried that her mom is going to do the same thing with Rich. And then all she's going to be able to see is, like, how horrible he is. Mm -hmm. so she brings him back to meet her family. And uh, the dinner does not go super smoothly. Like, he thinks it does. But he doesn't realize that he's doing, making all these faux pas. Like, her mom is... Being like, oh, it wasn't that good. It needed more of this and that. And just kind of like, not necessarily because she thinks it actually wasn't that good. But, you know, like. It's a self Doing that thing, thing people do. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, what the rest of them are supposed to do is be like, no, it was great. And then Rich is like, it does need more soy sauce. Um. And then just dumps that on his food. Like, honestly, this these aren't even necessarily cultural faux pas. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's just rude. That's just. Anytime someone cooks for you if they're like eh, like it wasn't that good no i don't care if it sucked you go like no it was, it was terrific you're a master chef <laughs> amazing <laughs> i'm sorry this is not i this is nothing to do with being chinese or not chinese <laughs> this has to do with manners i hated this scene so much we'll get into this more because there there's a rant coming anyway Afterwards, uh, Waverly is feeling very upset, but she, like, goes to talk to her mom, and she's like, me and Rich are engaged. And her mom's like, yeah, I noticed. <laughs> like, I knew that. <laughs> Why are you? And Waverly's like, I don't care that you hate him. And Linda's like, I don't hate him. What? Where is this coming from? <laughs> Waverly's like, you never want to talk about him. You always want to talk about other things, like my dad's doctor's appointment. And her mom's like, don't you want to know about your dad's health? <laughs> like, it's this whole epic music communication. But they, like, eventually kind of 
get to this point where Waverly realizes that she'd kind of been <laughs> building their mom up as this big antagonist that she really wasn't necessarily. <laughs> so they end up actually later on going all three of them to China together. That's the end of their story. Woo. One left. Let's see how many things we can get wrong or not agree about in this story. Everything. Our last family or mother-daughter appearance are uh, Ying Ying and Lena. So Ying Ying um, comes from a very wealthy family and her first story is about like, honestly, is the most... It's like the most unrelated I, story to anything. It is the most unrelated story to anything. Like, I... It's about... It's like a festival day, and they go to see a show with a moon lady, and she gets lost and separated from her family, and there's, like... She tells the moon lady she wants to be found. It doesn't seem to play into anything, so I don't really know how to deal with it. Um, more, <laughs> like... <laughs> Relevant story is um, that after growing up in this very wealthy family where she's, you know, very well taken care of and pampered and everything, she ends up being married to this man who then leaves her while she's pregnant for like an opera singer or something, (laughs) some other woman. Yeah. And she ends up aborting the baby because she's so angry with him and she, it really destroys her life for a while being left behind she feels like a ghost and she goes to live with this her relatives for a while but she doesn't really do anything there she just kind of stays because like what else is she gonna do and eventually she ends up leaving them and going to the city and becoming a salesperson and that's where she meets her husband oh i have forgotten his name his last name is saint Clair, and he is white he's white man saint Clair. we'll just call him that white man saint Clair. george is he George? <laughs> Larry? <laughs> Michael? I'm pretty sure he's George. John? Um, but uh, you know what? I could be really wrong. I'm probably very wrong. Here, you keep going. I'll find the name. Wait, no. I, I'm going to find it. I'm going to... I'm so close. Oh, I, we'll see about No, that. I'm so wrong. So wrong. His name is Clifford. <laughs> Clifford St. Clair. Who is George? <laughs> there is a George somewhere in this story. I swear to God, there is a George. Where you at, George? I don't think Garrett there is. Uh, whatever. Clifford. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyhow, she meets him and she's like, yeah, he clearly wants to bang me. <laughs> uh, she's not like really interested in this. But, like, this man <laughs> keeps coming to her store to flirt with her. And he, like, brings her these trinkets. And she's like, I come from a wealthy family. And these are pretty pathetic. But he thinks these are great. I'm going to keep letting him think that. Eventually, after four years, she decides to marry him. After learning her husband, who had left her, had died. Because he had kept bouncing between women. And eventually, one of them had had enough and stabbed him with a knife. And after that, she's like, I will marry this St. Clair person now. <laughs> and then moves to San Francisco with him. I actually think it's kind of interesting because it she goes on autopilot. It feels like after that, like her life has lost any meaning. And this mm-hmm. is how it relates to her daughter who is in this loveless marriage well, not even loveless. It's just weird. Or at least it isn't working anymore. So Lena 
is married to this guy named Harold. Sorry, all the men in this book actually might have the worst names. Harold Clifford. I I don't. Rich. I'm sorry if you have the names Leonard or Leonard. Wow, Harold or Clifford <laughs> or Leonard. <laughs> <for> that matter. <laughs> Although that's not a name in this book. Um. I just combined <laughs> Lena and Harold into Leonard. Okay, okay, I can do this. We're so close. Uh, she's with this guy, Harold. They met when they were both working at an architecture firm. They start dating, and she convinces him to start his own business. He, essentially, in this business, she is the one coming up with the ideas, but he takes all the credit for them, which is especially f***ed up because... Their whole thing is, like, so when they originally started going out, she wouldn't let him, like, pay for things. They would always go Dutch. And it was all about being being equals. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. But then, (laughs) I guess the point, he leaves. (laughs) Uh, Speak for yourself. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not saying there's a problem with the idea of it. It's just the lengths to which it goes. Mm. So (laughs) he leaves, creates his own firm. She goes with him. He ends up, like, not giving her a higher position because he's like, I don't want people to think of nepotism, you know, because I'm dating you. Mm -hmm. To be clear, she's coming up with a lot of the ideas and he's taking credit for them and he's getting paid significantly more. So when they eventually get married and move in together, they've kept up this whole thing of, of splitting. And they decide, you know, when they get a house, this is very reasonable, they'll do it by, like, essentially percentage so that they're not doing half and half because she's making this... Unless, but they're doing like what would be equivalent to half and half, like given their salaries. What's even given what both of them are making? It is not just this; it is everything. They keep a running list of like groceries and like still splitting that in half, etc. So when Lena's mom comes to stay with them for a little bit, this is after Lena's dad has died and renovations going on. It's a whole thing. She's staying with them for a little bit, and she's like, "What? What is this?" And Lena's like, we have truly gotten to the point, I don't know. Because she's like, it feels like everything is being, they're currently having a fight because of, like, Lena's cat that she has. Like, he, Harold didn't want her to have. And now, like, he's like, you need to pay for the cat to get defleed. It's really stupid, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) And... Lena's just feeling like everything now comes down to owing each other and like trying to make everything even and she's starting to feel like it it's not working. <laughs> and so because he's paying more in the house, like everything's kind of done in his style and it's just become not even, even though it's ostensibly even, if that makes sense. It's become like a form of control over her. Yeah. Oh my God, the dogs are... Oh my god. I don't know if you can, oh, I can hear, hear this. Oh, I can hear them. Are they okay? Are they okay? Something wrong I, with I, the dogs? I don't know. It's just, uh, oh god, I hate those dogs so much. You shut the f*** up, dog. I'm sorry, we can't, we're so close to the end of this stupid summary. I mean, that's, that's the end of the summary. Like, there's no <laughs> resolution to that. <laughs> She does confront him and is like, it's not working. But there is no resolution beyond that. It's just not working. Indeed. Oh, I forgot the whole thing in, like, her childhood where, like, her mom lost a baby. That was the thing that happened. You know that how uh, 
last time you were talking about with uh, Toni Morrison and pets and how you hate pets being killed and everything. I think a similar thing for me is when kids get killed off in stories Mm. because it's just so clearly manipulative. And if it's not the primary focus or if it's not done well, it just grinds my gears. And much like The Bluest Eye, it doesn't happen just once in this book. It happens twice where two kids are killed off. Well, okay, so... I feel like we should we should listen to this in order because I do think there are some instances where I agree with you and there's some instances where I don't. So like for instance, the one I was just speaking about where Ying Yang has a miscarriage. That doesn't bother me so much. Miscarriage has happened. It is very sad. But like it's not a kid dying per se. It's I like I I don't want to get into like when is <laughs> when is a fetus a baby or whatever. But like miscarriages do happen. They're very tragic. They're very hard for women to bear. Okay, not to... It is a thing. Not to be this guy, but it technically wasn't a miscarriage. It was that the baby was born. It's some kind of condition. I don't know the name of it, but basically the baby was born without a brain. So it just wasn't a viable kid. It was born naturally. For some reason, I thought it was that too, but also like miscarriage. I thought it like came super early and it also had that. No, no. No, okay. Yeah, but it, it... that is not as, it's not as important. But, right. So then the other instances are, um, Yingying also has, does the abortion herself. So that's, she has two things in her story that have to do with children or fetuses dying, depending on what we're classifying as children <laughs> and fetuses. Um, then there is the one that I will agree with you on that I don't think was, it was like both unnecessary and like it, Felt very. It never gets brought up again. It was so crazy. Yeah. So uh, this is An Mei's son, Rose's brother, who the one who falls off the cliff into the ocean and drowns. That one I agree with you on. I the funny thing is it's it's actually very I thought impactful and well done in the moment. And if there had been more in the other stories and follow through on that, I feel like I would have felt differently because like there's the whole thing where after he falls in and like. Rose freezes up and it's like this huge thing for her, right? And then her mom takes her out the next day to try and find him or his body and they're not able to do so. And I I actually thought that was was very impactful and moving as one of my like stronger emotional responses in the book. But then it never ever gets mentioned <laughs> again. Like it might get mentioned, but uh-huh. like it doesn't it's not like relevant. No, I think you're right. I don't think it ever gets brought up again. What was more insulting about it? The framing device of that chapter is that it's Rose trying to figure out how to tell her mom she's getting divorced. Mm -hmm. And it's like the most awkward. This book has so many awkward segues. It's (sighs) okay. Focus, Casey, focus. (laughs) So she is relating. She's relating her impending divorce to the death of her brother. And the way she frames it is that she thinks her mom's going to try to convince her to save the marriage because something that happened to her brother. And it's just the most insulting analog to me because 
the tragedy of the child itself. Like, you, I don't... I'm sorry, I'm not being very articulate here. And I think part of Wait. it is that I'm just so frustrated with the whole... I think I can <laughs> jump in please, and help, Yeah, baby. please, please. So I think how it could have been done really well, and what she kind of gestures towards but doesn't get at, is that if she had really used this idea that, like, this moment of freezing up for Rose then becomes a pattern going forwards, mm-hmm. like, that she's just not able to, like, make decisions after that. Because it's really this moment of, like, she sees her brother, she knows he's going to fall, and she just she's just frozen. Um, and obviously she blames herself for that. And then that's connected to her passivity going forwards, but not in a way of, like, this caused it. More in, like, oh, she's just... This is, like, an organic thing. passive. Right. And I think what could have really been cool is if it was, like, no, explicitly because this happened, going forward, like, she kept getting thrown back to this frozen space and not being able to make decisions. And that could have really made things interesting. But no, the connection is, yeah, so her mom drags her out the next day to try and look for her brother, even though, like, there's no way he could have survived. And she feels like it's the same, like, her mom's going to try and force her to save the marriage, even when there's no way it could be saved. And so, yes, that's a pretty weird way to connect those two things. I think part of it, it's this thing that inexperienced writers do, and... It's worth noting that this is Amy Tan's debut novel. Um, But it's this thing that inexperienced writers do where they don't trust the inherent tragedy of what they're writing. So they try to throw in something else to really magnify the, the sense of tragedy. And so we have this story of the divorce. But clearly, Tan is not confident that we will feel how sad a divorce is so she infuses it with this child dying to be like ah isn't this really sad it reminds me of this other thing and it's so frustrating it's so and there's like another scene that talks about a child dying that really was so jarring for me it's um yes we we hadn't finished our child dying. Place. Yeah, there, there's a well, there's also a teenage like, son Lindo's, who dies. Yes, <laughs> Lindo's teenage son dies at like sixteen in a car accident. She just mentions that like offhand. Yes, she's like, my son dies. Why is it mentioned offhand? Yeah. Like it literally comes. It's right interesting after... because <laughs> All right, so one, one of Anme's other sons gets arrested. That's brought up more often. Than Linda's son dying in a car accident. Yeah, it's so frustrating because, and not only that, but it's Linda's son dying is mentioned 10 lines after we get this scene of her husband proposing to her. And it really is the darn cutest scene of all time. And then the son dying is mentioned in the exact same tone. And I'm reading this. I'm not sure, like, is this supposed to be a parody? Am I supposed to, like, laugh at this? It's so inexplicable. And yeah, it, and it's because like, she, like, they, like, get married, and then she's like, and then here's what happened after we get married, and it's, like, a little summary, but, like, yeah, it does involve talking about her firstborn son dying at 16 in a car accident in, like, an off-the-cuff line. It is very strange. Especially because this is one of the last stories yeah. in the book, and... You know, I'm not going to say it wasn't mentioned earlier, but like 
I was surprised by it, so I don't think it was. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, some of our recall on details in this book is not the greatest. I think... And I... Yeah. I'm sorry. We're, like, talking over each other because maybe maybe we should take a step back here. What do we think about this book in general and then get into the specifics? Because I think we're we're trying to, like, race past each other to explain (laughs) why it's (laughs) it's a mess. Well, yeah, I was going to say we should step back and just talk about, I think, part of what's causing us problems is the characters. And maybe we should talk about characters as a whole and how characters are handled. And I think that will be a broad enough space for us. To not be jumping up on top of each other like dogs. <laughs> I'm going to take a step back and just to say that this book, it's called a novel, but it really is just 16 short stories stuck together. Mm-hmm. For me, the connecting thread is is very, very minimal. I think you mentioned in the intro that the whole concept, the title of the book The Joy Luck Club really plays no role in this book outside of just introducing us to these characters and why they actually know each other. So that ad hoc feeling for me carries throughout the novel. And I really, I'm going to take an even another step back and just say, I don't want to be a bastard about this. Like, it's very clear that I don't like this book, but I don't want to like, come off as the as that white guy being this female writer sucks that uh, i don't want to do that but i think there's just this this whole book to me is such a mess and i do think it starts with the characters just how indistinct they are from each other there are three daughters who are all married or getting married to or getting divorced from white guys and that's the central part of their stories is the is their marriages. It's like, oh god, it's it's so dull. It's just so dull to me. And and there's like nothing really interesting said about any of those marriages. So having to read basically the same story three times over is extremely frustrating for me. And that's where I feel like like having the brother this traumatic event of having the brother die is put in there to spruce it up because otherwise you really are just reading the same story over and over and over again with these three daughters. Uh, Jing Mei is kind of her own separate thing, which is Mm -hmm. unfortunate because I actually like her plot the most and everything else feels like it's just thrown in there to pad the page count. I... Yeah, I, maybe you I should that... take over because I just I'm gonna be such a negative Nancy this episode. I think, and I'm and I yeah. apologize about that. <laughs> I know this is gonna be the case, and I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, I'll come in with my slightly more positive thing. I think that I will say I think the thing that drags this collection down, and and that's why I thought it was important to mention that Amy Tan did not originally conceive this as a novel. It was, you know, created from short stories as as like something that had been requested that she do. And so I think that that does show that it wasn't planned this way. I think that the indistinguishability of some of the characters 
and the unresolved plots of some of those characters are really the things that keep this from being something I like more than a three-star liking, you know? So I agree that, like, the daughters in particular, other than, again, as you said, Jimei, tend to blur together. (laughs) And it's not that they're not interesting on their own, but I think part of it is, you know, again, Amy Tan was a very young writer. All of their perspectives are written the same way. Like, there's nothing really distinguishing to feel. And it's interesting because, like, in that first story where uh, you meet Jimei, you're introduced to the other women of the Joy Lock Club, it does feel like, you know, Anmei, Lindo, Yingying, they're, like, very distinct from each other in that chapter. And I would say the weird thing is then going into their own narratives, (laughs) they become less distinct because the way they're written is the same. They still have distinguishing characteristics, but, like, the voice for all of them is so similar that I think that's the real problem, is that they all sound like the same person, even if they're acting in different ways and, like, living different lives. So it's like, with then when you get to the daughters, who you don't see very often outside of their own perspectives, mm-hmm. and you're introduced to them, really, because the, they're not in their mother's first chapters, and they're not in Jamey's first chapter. So you're introduced to them through their own perspectives, and they all sound the same. So even though, like, what they're going through is actually relatively different, like, yes, there are white men in all of them. But like, so Waverly's first story is just her chess story. It doesn't even have Rich in it until her second story, I don't believe. Or no, Lena's first, Lena's first chapter, I think all of their first chapters are them as kids. No, that's not true. Rose's starts with her (laughs) divorce. Uh I'm sorry. I'm just placing the short stories in their correct order. I do remember all of their plot lines. It's just putting them in the order. So Rose is the only one in her like kid chapter that still has the adult bit. But it then has, um, as we were talking about, her brother dying as well. And Lena's is about her mom's unfortunate birth. I don't know how to describe that. Uh, a stillborn. Stillborn, thank you. Yeah. I could not remember that word. Her mom's stillborn birth. <laughs> also, that Lena thinks she's killed this kid. I know that's a weird thing to say off the cuff, but again, it never comes back. Wait, I was going somewhere with this. But yes, yeah, so even though technically they're all experiencing relatively different things, They all sound the same. (laughs) So it's hard to keep them straight. And also, in their perspectives, their moms all sound the same. So then, even (laughs) though at first they seemed very distinct, they get less and less distinct as time goes on. With the one exception being Jing Mei and her mom, who, by just the nature of this story, we spend the least amount of time with them because Jing Mei's mom is dead (laughs) when the book starts. I think the tragic thing too is that a lot of this can be attributed to this being Amy Tan's first novel. I think narratively, like there's a reason why the women seem more distinct in that first chapter when they're all together, something we never get again. Like, we don't often have these characters, like, other than the moms and the daughters, and they'll interact with other characters in their own stories, but we don't get more of these group scenes, really, which would, I think group scenes help you figure out how to distinguish characters from each (laughs) other, you know? You notice in a group scene if everyone is the same. And so I think as a writer, like, a good way to test 
how distinct your writing of characters is, is to stick them all in one scene together and see if they all sound the same. If we had gotten more group scenes and gotten more of these women interacting, which, like, I would have loved. I would have loved more of these women interacting. If we'd gotten more of that, it would have helped characters stand out more and be more of individuals in their own right. And then even if their perspectives had the same sort of narrative voice, we might have been able to keep them straight more. But we really don't get that. And I think that's why you saw us be, you know, thinking that Waverly worked at an architecture firm (laughs) when that was Lena and things like that. It blurs. Yeah, and I'm inevitably going to mix up who's married to whom just because all the men especially are just generic black holes of characters. Part of this, I think, is just it was a mistake to read this on the back of Toni Morrison because if anyone could do (laughs) a character study well, it was Toni Morrison. And this is like an example of when a character study is done badly (laughs) Because none of these characters are distinct enough from each other. And I would argue none of the characters are interesting enough with the exception of Jingmei and her mom. (sighs) The middle section of this book is such a drag. (laughs) Because I'm constantly reading through being like, wait, who is this character again? But then there's also the thing that like, I would have to consult the table of contents just to confirm if this was the same character as a previous mm-hmm. chapter with them, you know, you can't even necessarily tell that Waverly's chapters are the same character with the exception of like both of them mentioned chess <laughs> and, and that's how, you know, but even like that mentioned Waverly's second chapter. Oh God. Is she getting divorced or is she getting, no, she's getting married. She's getting married. Okay. So Waverly's second chapter is about her getting married, but because it's Waverly and because the whole chapter previously with Waverly spent it talking about her life as a child prodigy in chess, of course, this chapter has to mention chess, but the whole symbolism of chess doesn't really work that well because It's just not really relevant outside of the fact that it's nominally the same character. And you see this kind of pattern happen throughout the book where details are just dropped in to provide some kind of glue between Mm -hmm. all the stories. But the images aren't even really relevant or it doesn't quite work. There's like an image in... Oh, God, let let me find the right section so in ying ying's uh second section there's this whole metaphor with her daughter about how apparently she's told her daughter when her daughter was a kid that you have to like finish all the rice in your bowl because for every grain of rice you let leave uneaten will result in like a pockmark on your future husband which then leads her daughter to basically become anorexic which is a thing that does not go addressed at all by the narrative ever. And it's so frustrating and I'm losing track of what I'm trying to say here. But (laughs) Ying Ying in her second section mentions how she's trying to remember her past and how she ended up where she is. And she's trying to figure out 
how to tell this story to her daughter to help her daughter avoid something or other. And she describes how remembering is like, quote, looking into a bowl and finding the last grains of rice you did not finish, end quote, which is supposed to tie it back to her daughter's story. But what? What does that metaphor mean? How, how is remembering, like looking at a bowl and seeing rice grains? I don't. So it's like things like that that are so awkward and poorly written, in my opinion. Like when I was reading this book, I'm sorry, I know this is a rant, but when I was reading this book, I was engaging less the analytical side of my brain and more so engaging the creative writing side of my brain. And like the a lot of notes I took were notes that I would give to my classmates in creative writing classes. What is this character's motivation? Why is this happening? Things like that. And <laughs> this book is so it's frustrating because like the in individual pieces feel like there could be something interesting here and there. And you get a sense of that. But because it's trying so hard to be a novel and trying so hard to fit the pieces together that you feel things just being glued on so that it kind of tries to make sense when it just doesn't. It ultimately does not make any sense. See, and I would say it's not trying hard enough to be a novel. Mm. I would say it feels like maybe Amy Tan had quite a few of these previously written and then literally was like, how do I connect them <laughs> and put in these little things? I can confirm that there there is an interview when I, I did research because I'm like, how the f did this book get written? This is so bad. And there's an interview where she talks about how she's she had written a bunch of these short stories and they were all a mess. She literally says that. I'll just play it here. You know, everything in my life starts with confusion and that's good. Um, so the confusion is that I start off writing one story and then I wrote another one and I wrote another one. And then at the end, I had this mess of 16 stories. My editor looked at them and she said, they're about mothers and daughters. It was as though the craft of writing had tricked me into thinking about things I hadn't thought about. And that's what I think writing is about. Yeah, and I feel like they needed more rewriting to actually connect and work. And instead, there were just kind of small things added to tie them together. Okay, I have a, I have a couple further notes on the character things that sort of relate to what you said, but <laughs> also don't. Um, based off that, what I just said, like, I feel like part of the problem too is that, like, it seems like from the way this novel works that the daughter's stories should relate to their mother's stories. And that, therefore, the stories of the daughters and the stories of the mother should have the same theme and be kind of a complete whole. And that is not the case. <laughs> Again, other than Jingmei, who I think Jingmei's story with her mom is very connected with her mom's past. But again, it's told entirely from Jingmei's perspective because her mom is dead. Versus, like, so, for instance, I thought with, so Lindo's whole first story is about how she essentially got a divorce. And so then when Waverly brings up later on that, like, she got a divorce and her mom is still upset about that. I was like, oh, it doesn't seem like Waverly knows about this first marriage of mm -hmm. her mother's. Maybe that's going to come out and they're going to have a talk about this and, like, it's going to be connected. The two divorces. That is really interesting. Does that happen? No. 
Not at all. Not once. <laughs> and there's other things like that where, like, there'll be things that do sort of connect a little bit. So, like, for instance, when Yingying is talking about, like, she was a ghost after her first husband left her, etc. And now she feels like kind of Lena is a ghost in this house. That could have been more connected, but not really. It honestly seemed like Yingying should have, because like, she turns really, really passive, right? Should have been connected. She should have been the mom to Rose, mm. who is super passive. So like there's these, they don't connect and they don't form a complete story. And that combined with the fact that some of the, like, especially the daughter's stories don't get conclusions, makes it really kind of narratively unfulfilling in certain instances. And I think, too, you were talking about how the middle part of this book with the daughters was hard for you. And I've already spoken a little bit about why I think the daughters' perspectives are worse. But I think the other element is if we're talking about active and passive characters, in general, the mother's stories tend to be more active. We're talking about... um you really liked the story with Anmay where her mother commits suicide to like <laughs> gain her better fortune. But like the, what well, the image you put that it that way, me, that makes me sound like a monster. <laughs> <laughs> you are. No, but more seriously, I think the image that sticks with me from that chapter is like, so her, the second wife of the man her mom is married to tries to win Anmei over early on by giving her this string of pearls. And then Anmei's mother crushes one to show her they're just, they're fake. They're just glass beads. Yeah. And so there's this image in the end after Anmei's mother's suicide has terrified everyone <laughs> um, where Anmei smashes that necklace in front of the second wife. And it's like this very powerful moment of like taking back power. Mm. And like, a window blowing out the candle again and coming up with this dream, like very powerful moments of agency for these women, which kind of speaks against like some of the critics are talking about how um, uh, this is what we agreed we weren't getting into. <laughs> so wait, I feel like I should leave this here and not get into it. I think you can mention it if you want. Okay. I, I will mention then that some of the critics of this book talk about how China is portrayed as very like, backwards in its handling of women and that the women are oppressed there and then they come to America and they're limited, liberated. Mm -hmm. Not saying there is no misogyny going on in the China chapters at all. Just saying that we see women being more active and having more agency <laughs> in the sections that are set in China. We're seeing more agency with the older woman. Honestly, as you mentioned, the daughter's chapters are mostly about their relationships with white men. And in most of their relationships, they become pretty passive characters. Obviously, Rose's entire story is about her passivity. And then the one moment in the end when she's able to take back power or assert some sort of power. But like Lena's is all about how her husband is stealing her work from her and paying her less. Um, <laughs> and Waverly's is what is her relationship with Rich truly? I don't know. I don't why does she like him? <laughs> he sucks. No, he's She's apparently like, he's really good in bed. He's the best man ever, and he really loves me. Yeah, and he's really good in bed. And she's like, he worships the ground I walk on, which is great. Like, good for her, but, like, I really hated him. So it's hard, too, because, like, the daughters just feel so not active. And I, we don't need, like, female characters do not have to be active all of the time. I want to say that. I just think that having three much more passive characters 
being the younger generation back to back to back for the entire middle of the book. And, and even Jingmei in her way is much more passive. Like she's, her entire plot about how, is about how she doesn't try because like she thinks she can never live up to her mother's expectations. So she just doesn't try. And I mean, we can talk about her more because I do think she's much more interesting and it does like tie much more into her inferiority complex because of her mom's previous daughters and all of that. But like, she's also relatively passive <laughs> throughout the section. So then it does end up creating four ca- passive characters that are taking up the middle half of this book. I would argue that Jing Mei's passivity is active. Yeah, well, it's a... She's actively not trying. Yeah, it's it's a it's a way to write passivity that's actually interesting to me, and it involves her her relationship with her mom. Even if it takes the form of passivity, there's so much more going on, and you get the sense of that there's so much more going on. With the other characters, not so much. It really they really feel so one note, and you get this. I at least I got a sense that. So many of these stories, including some of the mom stories, feel like prologues to much bigger, more interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Like um, one of the moms that maybe it's Yang I want to say it's on Maze, probably. No, there's one story. I think let me let me let me find because it the way it ends. Yeah, it's Lindo's story where she talks about mm. how. She's basically got this message she wants to tell her daughter in order to... I, no, I that's that's Ying Ying's, isn't it? Oh, yeah, you're right. But that... Wait, <laughs> hold on. No, that's definitely... Because it's it's Telena and it's about, like, her marriage. <laughs> and it oh. just continues the trend of Lena getting no resolution. Yes, yes. Because, let me find... The way it was... Uh, I want because I want to quote the ending specifically of that section. It's kind of just a retelling of Lena's section, but from the mom's perspective. So we're seeing the same story twice. And it concludes with the end of Lena's section and with the mom is sleeping in a guest room. And there's this rickety table that the husband of Lena has built and it has a vase on it. And the vase falls and breaks. Lena comes up to see what happened. And the mom's like, the vase broke. And Lena says, I knew it would happen. And then the mom says, so why didn't you do anything about it? And then the story with Lena ends that way. And it's like, oh, I wonder how this will get resolved in the mom's section. But the mom's section literally ends with the same moment. Mm -hmm. And basically the same kind of question. And so there <laughs> so why do we circle back around to get to the same point? This looks strangely familiar. Because we've been here before. We're going in circles. It's so frustrating because it just feels like, okay, you've you've set it up now. What happens next? And I feel like that's that's it really feels like Tan didn't know how to end them, so she just ended them. So there's no actual resolution and no bigger point that you can take away from it about, okay, so what does this tell us about mom-daughter relationships? What does this tell tell us about Chinese-American experiences in America? What does this tell about the 
cultural differences and the generational differences and all these things that this book is supposedly telling us about, but it isn't actually telling us anything. It's just like repeating the same story over and over and over. And that's supposed to be profound. I don't know. Yeah, I, I really feel like, and, and we've kind of touched on this multiple times, but Jamie's story feels like it's the heart. It's the one that gets the resolution. It's the one that feels the most, like partly because it's all told in her perspective and we're not jumping back and forth, so it's all connected, feels the most coherent. And these other things feel like just kind of vignettes happening around it, playing on similar themes of the mother-daughter relationships, Chinese-American experience. I feel like, and I've seen this done, and I feel like a couple of books, and I, I kind of feel like this should have been the structure. I think that having little moments with other women speaking to similar experiences is not a bad thing. If it had been like 75% of this book had been Jingmei, and then maybe between Jingmei chapters or between every other chapter or something, there were like stories that were like a couple pages long, just one story Mm -hmm. from one of the other women in her life that's playing on a similar theme. And I've seen things done like this before, so I know it works. (laughs) Because then you get to get in these shorter stories and talk about slightly different things But you also get the core story driving it forward. And you understand that these are just meant to sort of like reinforce a particular theme or point or idea, right? Yeah. Then you can still have this collection of women's voices, which I do think is the cool thing about this book that I wish had been played up more, which is why I wanted more group scenes. The idea of the Doyla Club, the idea of these four connected families. So Jingmei's entire premise is really cool, right? Like her mom's dead. (laughs) She's grappling with... Their past relationship, which was not always the healthiest, she's grappling with the fact that now she has to meet her half-sisters and tell them about her mother. And there could have been scenes of her going and talking to her mother's friends, of her, like, she's not close with the other three girls, which is interesting because they all seem to still talk to each other because they all come up in each other's sections. Mm -hmm. Although, like, not in person. But, like, could have had more moments like you get one scene of Jingmei and Waverly facing off because they hate each other Mm -hmm. but like you could have had more moments of her talking to her other childhood friends and trying to like think this through then it could have been like you know maybe she has a scene with Waverly and Waverly's being awful because in the scene that she has with Waverly Waverly is awful (laughs) and then you get like a maybe three or four page story of like Waverly and you find out kind of what's going on with Waverly and that adds nuance to the conversation you didn't get before and you still get Waverly's story but like you're still grounded in Jingmei this is truly a situation where there's so much potential like you were saying these stories some of them feel like really interesting beginnings to other stories (laughs) and I I want them to either ground it in one story with these other stories kind of added in to enhance that story, or they really truly needed to have like the mother and daughter stories fully tied together into four little narratives that are, you know, tied up as one. (sighs) I don't have the issues with Amy Tan's writing that I know you have. Like, I I definitely felt some moments where I was like, ah, a baby writer has emerged. (laughs) If I was the editor, I would have been like, this line is a little too on the nose. This line is a little too dramatic. Let's tone it down. But like overall, she has a very smooth, readable style. And I don't think that's a negative. She does a really good job, too, of like getting emotions across in certain scenes. Honestly, 
who do I blame here? I blame the editor. The editor should have been like, we need to rework these stories further to make them better connected. And the editor should have been a little harsher about line editing. The editor's the one who submitted this short story and made Amy Tan have to turn this into a book. This was not Amy Tan's idea. I blame the editor. <laughs> I think to... to Hire me. To- <laughs> I need a job. I'm a good editor. Hire me. Catch the second part next week on Reread. See you then. I won't give you no money.